Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good evening, everybody. Um, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I think I've met everyone here. But my name is Eva, and I have the privilege uh, to bring you the message tonight. I haven't done this in a year, so please be kind. So, yeah, how about it? We are officially, um, well and truly, into Advent, 20 days to Christmas. That freaks me out a little bit. Um, but it feels like the years just get shorter and shorter as we go, and I'm not even that old. Um, unlike Aaron this morning who preached, he's, he's older than me. And <laughs> good thing he's not here. I hope he's not watching this right now. Um, but... Um, he preached on Luke 1 this morning as well, and if you were here, um, it was awesome. I was ready with my laptop to take notes, <laughs> so um, he was up here preaching on the infancy, one of the infancy narratives of Jesus, and he was talking about the birth of John the Baptist and the story of, uh, mainly the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're looking at the same thing today, but if you are here for the second time, especially the worship team, I hope that we will kind of, you will get something more out of this as well that you won't be thinking, I've already heard this. But you should be used to that because you do two services all the time anyway. <laughs> so we are looking at Luke 1. Um, 1 to 25. And as we read, um, this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to pause and explore a bit deeper. And this message, um, while we go through it, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open if you have it, because I'm going to do it like section by section. And this message will also make very little sense if we don't understand or if we forget that Israel at this time, was drenched in shame and honor culture. There are three major types of cultural philosophies, cultural types. And so we have the shame and honor culture, where all your actions and events and achievements, they're all kind of um, done in order to either well, in order to bring honor to you and your family. So the opposite will be bringing shame to your family. And there are so many, like so many Eastern um, countries, present day countries, of course, are shame and honor based. We've got the Western countries of today based um, on guilt versus innocence. And so in the West, we, um, we have, we kind of hold the moral compass as to whether someone, someone's actions and achievements make them innocent or guilty. Does that make sense? Um, okay. So in this time, though, there is also a third uh, common type, fear and power. I mean, all countries have all three of these, you know, because most countries now are multicultural. Um, however, it's just the predominantly, we've got West, the West is guilt, and, guilt versus innocence, You've got the East, shame and honor. So that's where we're seeing ancient Israel sitting. They are swimming in this shame and honor culture. So that's why we also see the victimhood mentality um, super rife in the Western world, right? 
when you are a victim, it's almost like you are innocent. So you can't be crucified due to guilt. When you are a victim, you don't need to be held accountable for moral failures and therefore innocent. I wonder if we've made innocence and victimhood synonyms. In many Eastern cultures, being a victim, though, is considered shameful. I'm not advocating for either or, but this, this is what we see happen. So that's why you might see in the Eastern cultures, if something horrible happens to a person, they do not want their identity to be attached to that horrible thing that happened. And sometimes this is where avoidance also comes in. So as an Indian, I'm an expert at that. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes. All right, now let's get out our Bibles. Have in the forefront of your minds that we are looking at an honor and shame culture. All right, Luke 1, verse 1, 2, 5, 4. Are we there? Okay, I'll give you a second. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So, Theophilus, Luke is addressing his gospel to someone called Theophilus. For a long time, it was believed that Theophilus was a Roman official. However, there's also evidence, primary sources, that suggest that he was a Jewish high priest. So regardless, though, whichever he was, the letter is addressed to one person. It was also written for all believers. So I've been writing student reports this whole term, basically. And in these reports, you have like a million things you need to follow. And your deputy or whoever looks over the reports, they kind of fine comb through it. And then you go and sit and you have to change how it's worded, change how everything. All the, it's like a huge, huge process. It's a mammoth task. So I've been writing these reports. And the main rule, though, is this. You are not writing your report comments to the student. So you can never directly address them. You have, you're writing it for the stakeholders, but mainly the parents, right? So, for example, if Mitchell was my student, I can't say, um, well done, Mitchell, uh, on your great effort this whole year. You did an amazing job and passed the course. Um, I can't say that. However, I can say um, Mitchell is to be commended for his effort throughout the course of this year. So that is writing... <laughs> that is writing about... Mitchell, and no doubt Mitchell will probably read his report when he gets a whooping from his parents. Um, <laughs> however, it's not written to him. And that's what we mean when we say the Bible is written not to us, but it's written for us, right? So 
And if you're Indian, your reports are being read by your ancestors, your whole family, your Instagram community, everyone. So that's, that's kind of what happened to me. So I'm very traumatized from that. There's always room for improvement. Yes, yes. Better luck next time. <laughs> so, um, as a physician, uh, we've established that Luke is passionate about accuracy and detail, right? So he is an educated individual, we could say. He's a doctor, right? But the ancient mind, regardless of whether they were uneducated or educated, were keenly trained to be observant and transfer messages accurately. So in our 21st century mind, we are puppeteered by the gods of Silicon Valley. And <laughs> we have this memory extension called a phone. We are in a position that does not require us to memorize data because we can access it from a storage that is external to our brain. But not so in the ancient world. They had to be expert eyewitnesses and oral communicators if they wanted an event to be remembered accurately. Let's keep reading, verse five onwards. The birth of John the Baptist foretold. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a high priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a, priest, as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Okie dokie. Now last week, Brett touched on one of the five Herods mentioned in the New Testament, Herod the Great, a man who sat on the fence with his spiritual allegiance, a man who murdered his favorite wife, a man who murdered three of his sons and also a mother-in-law, a man who invited a uh, Levite for a little swim date and he drowned him, and a man who demanded that all of these groups of um, priests were to be put to death, Jewish officials were to be put to death on the day that he died um, so that there would be someone who would mourn um, during when, after he, he died because everyone was ready to celebrate his death, right? So, Zachariah and Elizabeth, this is the time in which they find themselves. Um, Zachariah finds them as a priest in what was a minority culture of the time. So it's not a great start. It's estimated that there were about 18,000 priests and Levites, and each of the 24 um, divisions took turns to serve um, in the temple during these major festivals and also biannually. 
So Zechariah had to be chosen by Lot. And by Lot, we mean um, Aaron this morning said it's kind of like rock, paper, scissors. Um, And that's exactly what it is. It's a chance um, game. I don't know exactly what they used. I haven't researched that. So I'm guessing they might cast some stones or whatever, and whoever gets the lucky one wins, right? And they truly believed that God assisted in this process. So they used that technique to draw out one out of a lot so that um, it would be kind of fair. So then Zachariah was drawn out of these thousands of priests to do this um, particular ceremonial thing in the temple. So this wasn't um, an easy or this wasn't a simple thing for him. It was something that he may never get to do again in his lifetime. And remember, this is he is probably around 60, 70 years old at this stage. So he um, has this huge honor of performing this ritual. So Zachariah also being described as blameless, I can imagine he would have been anticipating this honor with nervousness and reverence. You know, but being d- described as blameless doesn't necessarily mean that they have never sinned and they are perfect, but that they never explicitly broke any of the biblical commandments and that they were examples to follow. They sought to be righteous and like Job in the Old Testament. Right? We can imagine um, how excited and nervous Zechariah would have been. And also remember, in the shame and honor culture, without the one thing that marked your marriage as blessed being having a child, it must have been incredibly hard for Zechariah as a priest because what happened when people in the ancient world didn't have, or ancient Jewish culture didn't have babies, was that they were hiding, that was evidence of some kind of secret sin that they were hiding, some kind of unrighteousness that they haven't repented of. So this priest, who was supposed to be held to this higher standard, and his wife, although in the Bible we can see now that they are considered blameless, in those times, especially before the birth of John, they would not have been considered blameless by the people around them. They would have been considered blameworthy, right? So, Zachariah was also within his rights if he were to divorce um, Elizabeth and marry a younger woman who could provide him an heir. But Zachariah didn't. He must have loved her enough to face the dishonor that surely would have come and the rumors that they had some kind of hidden unrighteousness, which was revealed in Elizabeth's barrenness. And this is not the first couple in the Bible to struggle with infertility. This story rings very, a very similar tune to that of Abraham and Sarah. And I wonder if Elizabeth suggests, you know, in the heat of the moment as they're having these couple heated discussions, intense fellowship as Nathan calls it, um, <laughs> Um, that maybe she said, just leave me for a younger person and go have a child. Like, I don't want to be the cause of your pain. Maybe, because Zachariah was the end of his line. Once he died, there was no one, right? So for her to not have produced an heir for Zachariah, and remember, we are in a shame and honor culture. It might not ring, it might sound weird to us here, producing an heir for Mitchell, like, you know. Um, However, for her, it... (laughs) It was um, absolutely shame, shameful. 
And anyway, so I wonder if she had said, like Sarah did, um, and encouraged Abraham to have a child with Hagar. Um, but we don't know. We can only speculate. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> However, God had a plan for these women to give birth later in life because they um, and their children ended up doing amazing things. We've got Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and John, who was the forerunner of Jesus. He, he was here to turn people back, prepare people for Jesus, for the coming Messiah. And so God used these felt needs of Zechariah and Elizabeth to ultimately fulfill his will. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 11 to 21 says this. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will, sorry, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go on before the, God, before the Lord in, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to him. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Now, before we explore the Gabriel interaction, let's focus on 21 and 22, where the people are afraid that he's taking so long. The reason that they were afraid is that these processes had very specific instructions. They had to be purified, cleaned. They're still in the old covenant, remember? So they have to be very, they have to follow very specific things to be clean enough to go into the temple and offer and burn incense, right? So these people waiting outside are anticipating Zechariah to return. And when he's taking so long to come back, they're thinking, oh no, have we done something wrong? Has he died? Um, so there is genuine fear that they're waiting, they're not just being impatient, although that could have also been <laughs> a source of frustration. Okay, now let's go back to Ze uh, Zachariah and Gabriel's interaction. Now Gabriel isn't just any old angel. 
He is one of two angels who are named in the Bible, him and Michael, right? So Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, um, and I stand in the presence of God. So he stood in the presence of God. So he's a pretty big deal. And when Gabriel's saying, and you didn't believe this, and this will happen, and now you're going to be just mute, um, I wonder all the thoughts and emotions that would have been going through Zachariah being a priest. He was sent for, Gabriel was sent for a very important mission. Zachariah and Elizabeth have been praying for this. This is something that they desired. When Gabriel appeared to him, I don't know if you noticed, he said, your prayer has been heard. So he's been praying for this specific thing. And I don't know about you, but my first thought when I kind of read this section was, that's a bit harsh. We would have all done that. If an angel was, came to you, gave you a personal face-to-face -face visitation and said, you know what, that thing, that one thing that you've been praying for, that's going to happen. I'm going to be thinking, what? But how? Especially if it's something uh, that logically seems impossible, right? And, you know, we just saw that Zachariah was blameless, considered blameless. So then does it seem harsh to you that he was suddenly made mute just because he didn't straight away believe what Gabriel just said? Mary, mother of Jesus, also seemed to question how her conception was possible, how it's going to work. But she wasn't made mute. And here's the thing, Mary wasn't asking to be pregnant. She was a 14-year-old girl, never been married, probably had no idea how it even happens, right? Whereas Zachariah and Elizabeth have been married for decades, um, and they've been praying for this specific thing. Zachariah was also not the first prophet to be shut up. Muteness was used as a prophetic sign by God before in the Old Testament. He asked Gabriel, Zachariah asked Gabriel, how he can be sure of this message. And as harsh as it may sound to our rights and freedoms-obsessed Western years, this was the sign that he was given to the question that he asked. Being a priest, though, would mean that Zechariah would more than likely be aware of the prophets of the past. And I wonder if his mind went to Ezekiel straight away, the prophet who was made mute, who was mute, as soon as he recovered from the shock of seeing an angel. And you have to give Zechariah some credit. After he was silenced, he was determined to communicate what had, happened to the, what had happened to the others outside the temple. Was his faith being built up by God? John is to be the forerunner of Jesus. His purpose is to prepare the way for him. While Zechariah could not rejo rejoice out loud, I'm sure he realized soon enough that his line won't end with him and that he had no idea when um, his voice, if at all, would come back. But I think he would have been willing to pay that as a price for what he got. Let's read the last couple of verses of this section, 23 to 25. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. 
After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, woohoo, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my grace among the people. Let's talk about Elizabeth and her faith response. Here are a couple of things we need to remember. Elizabeth's conception was a miracle in the sense that she was probably, um, she was very old, so biologically she was not, she was unable to conceive, and they've struggled their whole lives with infertility. But it isn't miraculous in the manner that Mary's is, because Elizabeth and Zachariah took part in relations to fulfill the prophecy. <laughs> they partnered with God to bring about this promise. John was biologically Zach and Zechariah and Elizabeth, unlike Jesus and Joseph. So for five months, five months, Elizabeth remained in seclusion. And I just can't imagine the emotions that she would have been feeling. If we were to step into her shoes from the lens of a Jewish woman in the ancient world, Elizabeth, along with the rest of Israel, swimming in shame and honor culture. She would have seen herself go through the motions of hope and grief and shame and sorrow and anger as the years ticked by as it went on with no heir to bear Zachariah's name. She kept to herself for five months and she savored the goodness of God. She praised him in those moments. No one would have believed her that she was pregnant until she started showing. In those five months she spent in seclusion, that was with the one she cherished the most. It was with her father, the God of Israel. Elizabeth is thankful that God has shown his favor to her and taken away her disgrace, that she has faced all her marriage. God didn't just give her a baby, but the forerunner, John. She and she, her family, John, have a special place in history that nobody else has. This was a prophecy being fulfilled. It was a long time coming. The birth of John marks the beginning of the advent of Jesus, which was the beginning of God's move to reverse shame. We can learn so much from Elizabeth's response and her faith over her life. She was sad, but she never became bitter because of her barrenness. She had enormous faith in God her whole life. She appreciated God's mercy and kindness. She praised God for giving her a son. Elizabeth was humble even though she played a key role in God's plan of salvation. Her focus was always on the Lord and never herself. So let me leave you with these thoughts. When you face disappointments in life, what do you do? Do you let the disappointments in your life lead to disillusionment in your faith? Do you let the disappointment in your life be the breeding ground 
for doubt uh, of God's word. Zechariah and Elizabeth dutifully followed the rules and was blameless and righteous before God. When Zechariah didn't believe God's promise, God disciplined him with love. His discipline is about bringing us back to the place that we belong. Not to make us feel less than we are, but God's discipline aims to provide clarity and to give us direction. God revealed incredible things to Zechariah. As soon as he could talk, all he could talk about was God. Elizabeth retreated into the presence of God as soon as she knew what he had done. The temptation to shout from the mountaintops to prove the naysayers and um, all of these people spreading rumors about her would have been there. I think the first thing I would have been doing is telling all these people, saying, told you so, told you so, right? She didn't do that. For five months, she didn't do that. And she retreated into the presence of the Most High to delight and praise His name. Neither of them allowed self-pity and resentment to engulf their faith. Their righteousness didn't guarantee prominence. It didn't guarantee affluence. It didn't even guarantee happiness. God allowed the shame to occur so that honor could be established. How does this apply to our cultural lens? Innocence versus guilt. Have you been put on trial for in our cancel culture world? Do you believe that God transcends above cultural frameworks? That He has indeed taken the place of your and my guilt so that we may appear innocent before the only one who matters? Do you believe that we may stand justified before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus? That we continue to be sanctified as, as a priesthood? When shame and of Jesus 
Thank you that you came to the world. 